This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Well, hello there, and thank you for joining me for the One Verse Podcast. I'm your teacher for this podcast, Jeremy Myers. We're looking at Ephesians 6.14b today in this ongoing study of the armor of God out of Ephesians chapter 6. And we're talking about the breastplate of righteousness, what it is, how to put it on, how to make sure that as you go about your life, as you follow Jesus into spiritual warfare, you are wearing the breastplate of righteousness, another important aspect or element of the armor of God. Now, if you like this series, I do want to let you know there's two resources coming down the pike that you might be interested in. One is my online course on the armor of God. It includes a lot more detail and information than you are getting in these podcast studies. And you can take that course if you are part of my online discipleship group. The course is free for those who are part of the discipleship group. And you can see that course by visiting redeeminggod.com slash courses. The, um, the, the second resource that will be available to you coming down the, the pike is a book. That's probably a little bit further along the way to get those books out, uh, but I will be putting a book out on the Armor of God as well for those of you who want to read the book. So just check Amazon for that eventually. But by the way, if you take the course, if you're part of the online discipleship group and you take this course on the Armor of God, then you will be able to download an advanced copy of that book when it is available, which should be fairly shortly, as soon as I'm done with the series, pretty much. So um, the the, uh, advanced copy of that book will be free, and it's a PDF version, so you can print it off, you can read it, and it probably will be available that way a year or two before it is available to buy on Amazon. So if that's something interesting to you and you want to use this in your Bible study, Uh, group or just for personal reading and reference, then uh, that is the way you can get it. Now, uh, that way the course and the book are free for people in the discipleship group. I do want to let you know the discipleship group itself does have a small monthly or annual fee to join it. And that is just to sort of to to have you help me continue to put these resources out for you. It's a way to uh, show your thanks, your appreciation for the work that I do. And uh, by I make the resources back available to you as well as a way of thanking you for supporting me. So see how that all works, sort of a a big uh, circle here where we help each other as we help each other and support each other. So anyway, uh, if that's interesting to you to join the discipleship group, just go to redeeminggod.com slash join. That's where you find out more about the discipleship group. And that is also how you can sign up and uh, start taking these courses today. Okay, it's not just the armor of God. There are lots of other courses are available for members of the discipleship group as well. All right, so with that in mind, let's get into the study of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. All right, so we're in this ongoing study on the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. And today we're going to be looking at the breastplate of righteousness in Ephesians 6, 14b. We're taking these various pieces of the armor of God one at a time, and some of them take up one whole verse, but some only take up half a verse like this one here. So we're looking, we looked at the belt of truth last time, and today we'll be looking at the armor of God. Now, the 
Uh, Armor of God is very closely related to the Belt of Truth, as we talked about in the previous study. They are connected and they are tied together on the Roman soldier back in Paul's day. And so what we want to do as we discuss the breastplate of righteousness, in fact, all of the pieces of the armor of God, is look at it in three ways. We did this with the belt of truth, but we're doing it with the breastplate of righteousness as well, and all the other pieces. We're going to look at, first of all, sort of the cultural historical background of this piece of armor. That is, how it worked for the Roman soldier in Paul's day. Remember, Paul is writing this letter of Ephesians from prison, and he is most likely chained at this point to at least two Roman guards. Full-time, 24 hours a day, there were guards likely chained to him or in the room with him while he is in prison. And so Paul had a lot of time to look at their armor, talk with them about their armor, and we'll see later, even share the gospel with these, these soldiers. He might have been the prisoner, but they were the captive audience. And uh, Paul also knew, as he's writing to the Ephesians, that they were familiar with Roman guards, Roman soldiers as well. And so Paul is making some comparisons between the armor that the Roman soldiers wore and the spiritual armor that you and I wear as Christians. And so it's very important for us to go back and look at the historical, cultural background for this piece of armor in, in today's study, the breastplate that the Roman soldier was wearing. That's the first thing we're going to look at. The second thing we'll be looking at is what the breastplate is for us as Christians. All right, Paul talks about this as the breastplate of righteousness, but what is that? How does it work? Okay, we'll be talking about that. Secondly, thirdly, and finally, and maybe most importantly for our purposes today, how can you and I put on the breastplate of righteousness. That is, how can you and I wear it in our day-to-day lives as we follow Jesus, right? As we follow him into battle, spiritual warfare even, okay? So that's how we will close out today's study as well. So let's begin with this first concept then, the breastplate for the soldier. How did it work for the soldier? What did it look like? And what did it do for them? So obviously the breastplate was worn on the chest or the torso of the soldier. All of us are pretty much familiar with that. And uh, it was usually sometimes early forms were made out of leather, but the ones that were worn by the soldiers in Paul's day were probably more likely made out of some sort of iron or metal. And the breastplates were not made out of one solid piece of metal the way We might think of medieval knights in England, uh, you know, pounding out on an anvil or something. Uh, It wasn't plate armor, the way we might sometimes think about armor. In fact, if you search Google for breastplate of righteousness, you're going to see a lot of pictures. The vast majority of them show breastplate armor like a knight would wear, uh, pounded out from one piece of metal or steel. That is not the way it was for the Roman soldier in Paul's day. The Roman soldier's armor was scale armor. Uh, It it was made by overlapping bands of metal that were then tied together uh, with leather cords. And this made the breastplate more flexible, more maneuverable than the kind of breastplates that knights, medieval knights wore. Now, yes, maybe not as strong, uh, but it was much lighter and flexible. Remember, we talked previously that the Ro- part of the Roman soldiers' training was that they had to run 24 miles in five hours while wearing their armor, All right? 
the, the medieval knights, I doubt they could run uh, five miles in five hours wearing that heavy, heavy full suit of armor. That's why you often always see them riding on horses because they were not very maneuverable and that heavy plate armor was not light or flexible. So the Roman soldiers wearing this sort of armor allowed them to run, allowed them to maneuver better on the field of battle, to keep light on their feet, and to also make quick maneuvers and changes during the battle. And that is why they designed the armor in this way. Now, what was the purpose for the breastplate? Obviously, it helped protect the soldier's vital organs. You think about what is in your torso. You have your heart, your lungs, your entire digestive system, you know, the, your, your stomach and your intestines and everything else. Uh, pretty much, if any of those organs are damaged in battle, the soldier is almost certainly going to die. Right? Your heart is damaged, you're dead, your lungs are damaged, you won't be able to breathe. Even if your stomach or intestines are damaged, they leak acid and other fluids into your stomach, and uh, without some sort of major surgery, you're going to die from internal bleeding and that sort of a thing. All right, so the breastplate helped with that. Now, uh, it was made of these strips of metal, as we mentioned, so it would, could be light and flexible. And obviously then its main purpose was to protect the vital organs of the soldier. That's pretty much self-explanatory. You pretty much know how breastplates work. So we don't need to talk about that too much more. So with this in mind, let us move on then to what the breastplate is for the Christian. How, uh, when Paul talks about the breastplate here, what does he have in mind? Well, he tells us here in verse 14, Ephesians 6, 14, that the breastplate is righteousness. He refers to this as the breastplate of righteousness. And we need to remember, of course, that the breastplate was connected, tied to the belt of truth, which we talked about in the last study. And the belt of truth, remember, was, we saw, the word of God. We put on the belt of truth by reading, studying, and learning what Scripture says. All right, now, it's connected then to the breastplate of righteousness. So, the breastplate of righteousness, we could say, is the right way of living that comes from learning and obeying the truth of Scripture. You don't know the right way to live unless you know what God says in Scripture about the right way to live. And obviously, there's a major difference between simply knowing the truth about how you're supposed to live and actually living the truth. So the breastplate for the Christian is not just knowing the truth of what Scripture says, but living it in your life. You could think about this a different way. There is a vast difference between being able to recite Bible verses and Bible facts and actually living or applying those verses and Bible facts to your life. A great example of this from the Scripture might be the Pharisees. Do you remember the Pharisees? Sure you do. If you've read the Gospels, then you know that Jesus often had run-ins and encounters with the religious leaders, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes of the temple. Now, the Pharisees, they were the Bible scholars, in Paul's day. They were the experts of the law. Uh, most of them, I'm told, had the entire Torah memorized. That's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Furthermore, they pretty much knew the history of Israel, forward and backward. 
They prayed and sang the Psalms. They could recite passages from the prophets. But it is this group of religious leaders who disagreed the most with what Jesus said and taught. Isn't that surprising? They are the Bible experts, and yet when Jesus comes along, it is the Bible experts that disagreed the most with Jesus. Might have something to say about Bible experts today as well, huh? Uh, But here's what Jesus said about these Bible experts, these Pharisees, in Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. These men, these Pharisees, were outwardly righteous. They appeared righteous to other people, right? They had all the right words, they had all the right actions, they had all the right behaviors. But Jesus says to them, it doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. It doesn't matter how much you know about the Bible. What matters is what your heart looks like and how are you living towards other people. All right? This is what the breastplate of righteousness is for. Just as the breastplate was made of uh, many interlocking strips of metal tied together to protect the vital organs of the soldier, so also I think we could say that the many passages of Scripture, when they are rightly understood, when they are rightly applied to our lives, they work together like interlocking truths to protect the vital functions of our life as a Christian. A lot of times we think about the Scripture as this big book, and it is a big book, uh, but the various passages of Scripture work together to guide our desires in our heart, in our life, in our actions, to keep our desires on the right track so that we desire the things of God, right, rather than the things of this world. Uh, We could say that to wear the breastplate of righteousness, we protect our heart, because the desires come from our heart, don't they? They, they, uh, the, The Scripture keeps the center of who we are, keeps our conscience pure, allows us to continue to breathe with our spiritual lungs, the pure air of the Holy Spirit, uh, so that we can be guided and shaped into the nature and character of Jesus Christ. Scripture allows us to properly digest and comprehend the things we experience in life, so that these experiences can then guide us and direct us toward living in peace and unity with other people. Uh, We are properly protected and informed by Scripture, our our desires, our heart, our, our, our interpretation of life experiences, so that we can live as God wants us to live. All right, so we see already this connection between how the breastplate protected the Roman soldier and also how it protects us as soldiers of Jesus Christ. Now, I've been talking a lot about righteousness, and maybe you might might be helpful for me to define that word, to know what it is. All right? And that's that would be important for us to do before we talk about how to put on righteousness. 
So the thing with righteousness, and it's sort of confusing because there are a whole set of English words that are related to one another, and which we use to attempt to explain a single biblical concept. All right, so there's English words like justification, justice, justify, righteous, and righteousness. And all of these words, yes, even justification and righteousness, they don't sound at all similar in English, but in Greek, they're all of the same word family. Dike, dikaiosune, dikaiao, dikaios. You hear the, the similar uh, terminology, root words between behind all of those words. By the way, I talk, or at least I should say, I will talk a lot more about this in my online course, The Gospel Dictionary. That course looks at 52 keywords of the gospel. And the uh, next one up is forgiveness. I should have that up in the next month or so. After that, though, eventually we're going to get to the R's, <laughs> and one of those will be righteousness. So make sure if you're part of my discipleship group that you you sign up to take that course as well, the Gospel Dictionary. But the word uh, righteousness and justification and even justice, they're all related in Greek. And they all really, even in English, have similar themes and so on. Uh, The basic bottom line idea here is that they refer to the judgments, decisions, or announcements of someone who's in an authority, some authority figure, about the condition or rightness of someone or something else. All right, all of the words and ideas, justification, justice, righteousness, all right, uh, have the idea of being in the right. Okay, so for example, a judge or a justice might declare a person to be in the right. That is not guilty of what they were accused of of doing, right? Uh, But it's not just judges or justices. An accountant might declare a set of ledgers or financial records to be equaled or balanced, right? To be in the right. These books are right. Government officials might meet with officials from some other country to ratify or rightify a treaty, right, with them. And what happens is the two sets of officials come together, they look over the terms, they both agree that the treaty or the terms of the treaty are correct, are in the right. All right, so when, when we think about this word family with the Greek root of dike, dikaiao, something like that, all right, uh, where various English words have been used to translate this one Greek set of words, it, it, it can lead to confusion in English, in our theology, even in the way we think about it. And so, in my opinion, it would have been better for our English translators to stick with one term and, and just go with it. So maybe they could have stick, stuck with the English word right. And so rather than talk about justify, they could have used the word ratify or rightify even, Uh, ratification rather than justification, something like that. Okay, If we went with the word just rather than right, then they could speak of justice, justification, and justify, right, rather than righteousness or right, uh, uh, you know, righteous, things like that. Okay, but whichever word you go with, and even if you end up using both terms, righteousness and justification, uh, you need to remember that whatever's being talked about, uh, it is a declaration by someone in authority about the rightness of someone or something else. 
Now, here's a careful clarification I want to clear up before we, we move on to how to put on the breastplate of righteousness. In life, when a person in authority declares something or someone to be right, they are only making a declaration about the present or current condition of that person, of those books, of that treaty. Okay? They are not making any statement whatsoever in, in this life, in the human world, about the future condition of those books. Okay, so if an accountant looks at a set of books and says, yes, these are in the right, these just are justified, they balance, okay, he is not saying, and they will be balanced and in the right forever and ever in the future as well. No, because he knows that someone could come along in the future and make a mistake in future entries in that book, and at that point, they would be out of balance. They would no longer be righteous. They would no longer be justified. They would now be uh, out of balance. All right. So again, uh, if two governments make a treaty and then later different scenarios or situations happen, different leaders come in or one side breaks the treaty, at this point, the terms of the treaty are no longer in effect. Okay. Now, some people in a judge, if, if a judge comes in and declares a person not guilty, I see them, they're innocent, they are not guilty of the crimes. It's not saying they will never commit any crimes. No, because the person might leave that courtroom that very day and go commit a crime. Okay. So again, in this life, in this world, when someone makes this declaration, it's only about the current or present condition. Not, it's not saying anything about the future. Now, here's the thing. This gets very confusing in theology because it brings in this whole idea about when God declares us righteous, when God declares us right, to be in the right, to be not guilty, the question then is, is he making a statement about just our present condition or about our eternal condition before him? And lots of people say, oh, it's only about our present condition. And so we have to be, continue to live righteously if we're going to maintain our righteousness. As soon as we sin or lie or whatever, you know, break one of the Ten Commandments, we've lost our eternal life, we're no longer justified, we're no longer in the right with God, and we got to, you know, repent or confess or do something to get back to in the, being in the right with God. And it's a huge debate in theology, and you can sort of see why. But here's the thing. When God gives us his breastplate of righteousness, guess what? It is his righteousness. It's not our own. He gives his righteousness to us. And is there ever going to be a time in the history of the universe, from eternity past to eternity future, where God is not righteous? No. When God makes a declaration of righteousness towards us, it's not him saying, well, you're righteous now, but I don't know about you being righteous in the future. No, God is saying, I am giving my righteousness to you. And since I, God, will always be righteous, therefore you, at least from my perspective, in Jesus Christ, will always be righteous. So we need to make sure we understand that clarification. Now, does that mean we're always going to behave righteously? No, it doesn't. Even though we have the righteousness of God, uh, theologians call this the imputed righteousness. Even though we have God's righteousness uh, you know, on us, 
When we believe in Jesus for eternal life, we are declared righteous and we receive the righteousness of God, right? Even though we have that, it doesn't mean, doesn't guarantee that you and I will always behave righteously. We do sin and we do mess up and we do make mistakes. But when that happens, it doesn't negate or do away with or get rid of God's righteousness on us. Okay? Instead, it just encourages us and inspires us to move on to live according to the righteousness that we already have. And that brings us then to this third and final concept that I want to talk about in this study of the breastplate of righteousness, which is how can we put on the breastplate of righteousness? And there's two things to keep in mind here. First is receiving the righteousness of God. Okay, this is the breastplate of God's righteousness. So how do you receive it in the first place? Well, if you've read my books, listened to my podcast, taken any of my courses, especially my course, The Gospel According to Scripture, you know how to receive the righteousness of God. It's the same way to how to receive eternal life. You believe in Jesus for it. It's that simple. There's no ifs, ands, or buts, no fine print, okay? No, no, no strings attached. You receive the righteousness of God by believing in Jesus for it. And so, uh, when you believe in Jesus, you are placed in Jesus. You are justified at that point. This is what Paul—Jesus talks about receiving eternal life. Paul talks about justification or the, receiving the righteousness of God, okay? So, that is how to receive the righteousness of God. Here's the thing, though. Having received the righteousness of God by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone is not the same thing as living— the righteous life that God wants and desires for us. Okay, we do make mistakes, and we can mess up. And there's these sort of two aspects of righteousness that I want you to try to keep in mind. There's this righteousness of God that he's given to us, but then also there's this practical day-by-day living in righteousness that will help us maintain our spiritual health and vitality and strength and vigor— on the field of battle, so that we can stay on our feet, stay standing as we withstand the wiles of the devil and the attacks of our of the enemy. And when Paul is talking about the breastplate of righteousness, I think he has both concepts in mind. We first of all need to receive the breastplate of righteousness from God by believing in Jesus for it, But then we need to make sure that if we're going to stand against the devil, if we're going to stay on our feet in spiritual warfare, we need to always have the breastplate of righteousness strapped upon us. We need to protect our vital organs, our heart, our lungs, right, our intestines, our stomach, uh, with the breastplate of righteousness, have it always strapped upon us so that as we go about as we go about fighting and struggling and following Jesus, we can be protected and we can live our lives as Jesus wants us to do. All right. So towards that end, here's what I would encourage. Here's how I encourage people to think about this. All right. Sin is the infection and the darts and the wiles and the dangers and the tricks and the traps of the devil that uh, get past our armor and cause damage to our vital organs. And so the goal of the Christian life, one goal of the Christian life, I should say, is to get rid of sin in our lives. Uh, Paul would call this, biblical authors, theologians would call this sanctification. 
All right, we become more and more pure. We, we seek to become more and more like Jesus through our lives. So how does this work? And, and once we've received the righteousness of God, now we need to focus on living and practicing that righteousness in our lives. And we do that by getting rid of sin. I, I invite people to think about this as sort of uh, spiritual CPR. All right, you think about CPR, you know what it is cardiopulmonary resuscitation, something like that, as I'm trying to think of it off the top of my head. But you know what CPR is? When a person uh, is on the ground, they've had a heart attack or their lungs have stopped working, well, you can engage in CPR to get their lungs breathing again, to get their heart beating again. All right. And we can, uh, and, and you know, the lungs and the heart, they're in, in our torso. So we're thinking here about protecting our torso, protecting our heart, protecting our lungs. So I find it helpful to engage in spiritual CPR on ourselves and on other people. And the CPR for spiritual CPR is confession, purification, and repentance. These are three biblical concepts, biblical terms, which teach us about protecting our heart, uh, uh, keeping us in a way that our our lungs are continuing to breathe the air of the Holy Spirit. All right, so uh, let me just briefly go through what these three concepts, how they are taught in Scripture, CPR, confession, purification, repentance, the difference between the three of them, and how they will help us make sure we are wearing the breastplate of righteousness in our lives. All right, spiritual CPR. Let's start with uh, confession, which is uh, the C in CPR. Confession. There's uh, several passages in the Bible that talk about confession, but I think one of the best of these is 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10. Uh, but, but people, when they talk about, think about confession, a lot of times they think about going to a priest, you know, in those little confessional booths in Catholic churches and confessing to them. Then they say, well, what should I confess? And how should I confess? And what words should I confess? Well, let me just tell you, uh, uh, in the gospel, by the way, in the gospel dictionary course, confess is one of the words that's already there. So let me just, I'm just going to briefly summarize it here for you now. But if you're part of the discipleship group, you can go get the full lesson of the, in the gospel dictionary course, the word for confess is already there. But confession, the word confess basically just means to agree. Uh, It means that when uh, someone points out our sin to us, it might be another person, or it might be God by the Holy Spirit, or even through Scripture, that we agree that what we have done is wrong. That's what the word confession means, to agree that what you've done is wrong. And here's how this works in the Christian life. We Christians often do things that we know are wrong, right? We know we're not supposed to lie. We know we're not supposed to, to lust, to steal, to covet, you know, to commit any number of sins. We know it. We've been taught it. We've been trained it. We read it in Scripture. But sometimes, even though we know we're not supposed to do it, in a moment of weakness, we engage in these sins anyway. When that happens, the Holy Spirit usually works either through another person or through Scripture or just by the inner leading of our conscience you know, giving us, you know, maybe some guilt or something to let us know that, hey, that was not correct. What you did there was wrong. And when that happens, we have a choice. We can either agree with the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, that was wrong. (laughs) I knew it was wrong. What I did was wrong. I agree with you, God. Oh, I, I agree with this passage of Scripture. 
Yes, pastor. Yes, my friend. I agree with what you're telling me that what I did was wrong. Okay? Or, in our choice, we can say, no, we can try to defend ourselves. We can try to uh, continue our sinful behavior and say, oh, that wasn't wrong. If you just knew the situation I was in, I had no choice. That sort of a thing. Okay? It's the choice. We do something we knew was wrong. We're confronted, convicted by it. And at that minute, at that second, we have a choice. We can either agree or disagree. We can agree, yeah, that was wrong, or disagree. No, it wasn't. And defend ourselves. Okay. Now, if you agree, then you have confessed. You have agreed with the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And at that point, you are now sort of delivered from it, freed from it. But here's what happens if you disagree. You're going to commit it again. And if you don't confess, you're going to commit it again and again. And pretty soon, that sin, whatever it is, starts to control you. It becomes an addiction. It becomes a destructive presence in your life, right, that takes over and uh, enslaves you. And when that happens, Confession is no longer going to, going to be enough to liberate you. And when that happens, you're actually going to need repentance, which again is part of CPR, and we'll talk about that in a minute. All right? So, uh, but, but you look at patterns of sin in your life, and you know, you can go back and see, that they all begin with committing the sin one time. And you can go back and you can think about that. Yeah, I was convicted at that time when I committed that sin. But if you disagree, no, it wasn't sinful, or you try to justify your behavior, then you can see, oh, it became a pattern. And pretty soon, I was addicted to it. I was enslaved to it. So again, the first part of spiritual CPR is that when you sin, when you do something you knew was wrong, and you're convicted by it, don't argue, don't disagree. Instead, agree that what the Spirit is telling you, what the Spirit is convicting you of, you did, in fact, do it. That allows you to break free, to, to not even enter into the path of the journey that is going to lead to addiction and to destruction in your life. Okay, so that's confession. You do something you knew was wrong, agree, own up to it, and you will be delivered from it right then. Now, let's move on to purification. We're going to get to repentance in just a minute, how to handle the patterns of sin, the destructive sins, uh, the addictions in, uh, toward, toward sin in our life. But first, let's talk about purification. Uh, spiritual CPR. The second term to look at is purification or purity. And we see this in James 4.8 and elsewhere. Um, but here's how purification is different from confession. All right. Uh, confession is required when we do something we knew was wrong. Okay. We knew it was wrong to lie, but we lied anyway. Uh, we, you know, our, our conscience kicked in. And so we confess to God and we confess to the person we lied to. Purification, though, is different. Purification is when we do something wrong, but we didn't know it was wrong at the time we did it. Right? Uh, purification is required when we discover that there's some behavior or some action or some activity in our lives, which maybe we've been doing for a very, very long time, maybe our entire lives, but we never knew it was wrong until the Holy Spirit comes along, once again, the Holy Spirit, and convicts us of it, points it out to us. Okay, so you see the difference between confession and purification. In confession, you do something you knew was wrong. Purification, 
Uh, and it's usually just like a one-time thing. Yeah, I did that. It's wrong. Turn from it. Purification, you might have been doing it for a very long time, but you didn't know it was wrong. Or maybe it was a one-time action, but you still didn't know it was wrong. But purification comes, happens, is required when God comes along and says, hey, you know this behavior you're engaging in? Yeah, you've been doing this for a very long time, and I've overlooked it up till now because there's other areas of your life that I've been working on, but now it's time to deal with this. We've cleaned out your bedroom. Now let's go look at what's in that closet over there. There's something there I want to shed some light on. So you go open the closet, and he says, see this mess? This needs to get cleaned up. It's been here for a decade. It's time to sweep out this closet. All right? And, and, and so this is when purification is needed. Now, you might say, what sort of things, uh, Jeremy, are, might, might involve here? Well, there's all sorts of things in our lives that God might seek to purify us from. By the way, James talks about a lot of these. As you read through the book of James, he's talking, for example, about favoritism. Well, the world doesn't see anything wrong with favoritism most of the time. In fact, that's how most of the business world and the political world operates, on having favorites. And, you know, we j might just say, well, that's the way the world works, so I need to do it. And until sometime, maybe we're reading James or whatever, we're uh, praying or listening to a sermon, and oh boy, I'm really showing favoritism towards this one group, this one person, and you get convicted of it. Favoritism. Um, how we use our tongue. James talks about tongue, uh, the use of the tongue in, in James. Uh, even prayer. How we pray. Uh, James confronts that. Sometimes we pray in a sinful way because we use prayer as an alternative to actually helping a brother or sister in need. That's what James 2, 14 to 26 is all about. It's not about how to tell whether someone has true faith or false faith. James is saying, if you see a brother or sister in need, don't pray about them, help them. Okay, Prayer is not good for anything. I don't care how much you believe, have faith that God can help them. When you see a brother and sister in need, God doesn't want you to have faith that he can help them. God wants you to help them, okay? Uh, anyway, James is talking about all this. And, and uh, money, our use of money. This is a huge area that many Christians don't even think a, have a second thought about. Uh, but the scripture contains all sorts of teachings about our, the proper use of money. And so uh, that, that's going to help us, okay? Uh, uh, purifies. Purification is when we have either a one-time sin or a pattern of sin that we've been engaging in for weeks, months, or years. And God doesn't, thankfully, God doesn't dump all of our sins on us all at once, point them all out to us, because that would be overwhelming. No, thankfully, God is gracious, He's compassionate, He's merciful, and He's patient, and He works with us pretty much at one thing at a time. And when he feels like we've made some progress on that, he says, okay, now let's look what you've swept under that bed over there. You want to go look at that? That's the next thing we can work on. And you do that. And then he says, okay, and how about that closet? Okay, we've done that. Now let's go look at this mess in the bathroom. Okay, this is how it works in our life. God slowly purifies us one thing at a time uh, over the course of our life. And this also is the process of sanctification. And this is what James 4.8 is talking about. He says, draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Okay, this concept of cleansing and purifying. How does it happen? It happens as we draw near to God. As we do that, he draws near to us. When we first become Christians, we are separated from by God in so many ways. We don't know much about him. We don't trust him. We don't know scripture. We're not sure what he's going to ask us to do. But as over time, we draw closer and closer and closer to God. He draws closer and closer and closer to us. 
And when that happens, he points out more and more and more sin in our lives that we might not have even known was sin. And James says, as that happens, cleanse yourself of these things that God points out in your life. Purify your hearts, purify your lives from the things that God reveals to you. I need to tell you, this process of purification is a never-ending cycle. As we become more and more like Jesus, more and more like the person God wants us to be. Right? This is the process of purification. We've seen C, confession. It's for these one-time sins that we committed that we knew were wrong, that we shouldn't have done it, and we did it anyway. Purification is for these sins, either one time or long term, that we didn't know was wrong. And God, through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, points them out to us bit by bit, (laughs) year by year, to slowly purify our lives, refine our lives as a refiner's fire. That's what he does, okay? Finally then, the R. The R. We've looked at C. We've looked at P. What is the R? It is repentance, all right? Uh, Repentance is different from the other two in that repentance is required for a pattern of sin, just as in purification, that we are practicing, which we know is wrong like a confession, okay? It's a long-term pattern of sin, just like in purification, but we've been doing it a long time and we know it's wrong, just like in confession. This is when confession's not going to cut it. You can agree with God, yeah, this is wrong, but you've known that the whole time and you're doing it anyway. Now you are doing it because you are addicted to it. You are enslaved. You don't see a way out, okay? You can't help yourself most of the time. This is when repentance is necessary. And probably one of the classic parables on repentance or stories, passages on repentance is the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. You know the story. It's about uh, a father who has two sons. The younger father, I'm sorry, the younger son asks for his inheritance early, which is basically saying, giving the middle finger to his dad, saying, I wish you were dead. Why don't you just die? And uh, he, he goes off to uh, a far land where he squanders his inheritance on riotous living and feasting and parties. Eventually, his situation gets so bad, he finds himself living and eating with the pigs. And he says, you know what? The servants in my father's household have it better than this. I'm going to go back and see if he will hire me on as a servant. And uh, he goes back, and when he's a far, long way off, his father sees him, comes running out to meet him, which would have been a very undignified response for a Middle Eastern man at that time. Uh, but he doesn't hire him back as a servant. Instead, he throws a big welcome home party for his son. What's interesting about Luke 15 is that many people, often when you hear this passage preached or taught in churches— it's taught as, uh, as if the prodigal son is a non-Christian who is becoming a Christian. But that's really not what the story is about, is it? The son was a son before he ever went off into the far country. So it's not about a non-Christian becoming a Christian. It's about a Christian, a son, heading off for a long time into rebellion and sin, and then coming back. So the party that the father throws is not for a person who becomes a Christian, but for a person who is a Christian, went off, lived in riotous and sinful ways, and now has come back. Maybe we should throw parties like that more often, I think. 
for, for Christians, returning Christians in Christianity. And by the way, the other parables uh, in Luke 15 back up this, okay, uh, this, this, this view. The woman who loses one of her uh, 10 coins, right? Well, the coin was hers before she lost it. Yes, she didn't find a coin that wasn't hers before. It was hers, and she lost it. Same with the 100 sheep. The sheep belonged to the shepherd, and then the sheep strayed and went away. It was lost, and the shepherd went out and found his sheep. Okay, this is not about a sheep who wasn't his sheep and now became his sheep. No, this is about a sheep who was his sheep. So all three of these parables in Luke 15, not about non-Christians, non-believers becoming Christians, but about Christians, brothers, uh, sons, children of God who stray, who leave, who go away for a long time into sin and patterns of rebellion and wickedness. And maybe not in all areas of their life, okay, maybe they're still you know, singing songs and doing the church thing, and who knows what else might be involved, worshiping God, uh, but they have areas in their life which they are wayward, they are rebellious, they are strained, they are addicted, uh, and it's these areas in their life. Okay, now these, these three stories, and especially this one of the prodigal son, teach us a lot about repentance. When you have a pattern of sin in your life, an addictive behavior that you have engaged, practiced a long time, Purification is no longer an option because you knew it was wrong. Confession is no longer an option either. I mean, the very first stage of repentance might involve some confession, saying, God, okay, I've been doing this a long time. I agree with you that I need to fix this. All right? Uh, and, and very early on in that process, confession was an option. But, but now it's become a pattern of sin that you need to break free from. Repentance then is necessary. And here's how repentance works. By the way, Repentance also is going to be a word that I'd cover in my gospel dictionary course if you want to learn more a lot about learn a lot more about repentance. Repentance, though, it works this way. You've been going 180 degrees in one direction. Now you need to make a one I'm sorry, you've been going one direction, and now you need to make a 180 degree turn and go the opposite direction. In all areas of in, in all the areas of your life uh, that that were feeding this sinful habit or behavior or addiction. Okay, so whatever time money, resources, people, places that were helping you feed that pattern of sin. You're walking this way, away from God. You now need to take that same time, money, places, okay, uh, resources, and use those same things to now start obeying God, using them for the kingdom of God, using them to bless other people. You make a 180-degree turn, and you start walking back in the other direction. Now, here's the thing about repentance. Lots of Christians get frustrated with repentance because they think it's instantaneous. But let me tell you, if you spent 10 years walking into the woods, you're not going to walk out overnight, in a day, are you? You journeyed deep into those woods. 10 years you've been walking away. You're probably going to take at least a couple of years to work your way back out. Now, it usually doesn't take the full time. If you journeyed 10 years in, it usually doesn't take you 10 years to walk back out. Because why? Your father has been watching for you. And when he sees you from a long way off, he runs the rest of the way to meet you and journey back with you. That's, again, just one of the aspects of the gracious and patient uh, love of God for us. Okay, as we start the process of walking back, journeying back towards God, he comes and walks with us the rest of the way. 
Okay, but it's not going to be an overnight fix. It's not going to be instantaneous. You are going to stumble. You are going to fall. You are going to revert because you are addicted. And that's okay. You just keep picking yourself up off the mat. Keep remembering that no matter what, God loves you. His grace is sufficient for you. And if you keep pressing forward, keep picking yourself up, keep journeying on back towards God, there will be restoration. There will be redemption. There will be a party for you. Okay? That's how repentance works. And that's one of the things we learn from Luke chapter 15. Okay, so how do we put on the breastplate of righteousness? Well, we read and apply the scriptures that we got from the belt of truth, and then we apply them to our lives through spiritual CPR. Confess the things that we knew, one-time things that we knew were wrong. Purify our lives from the patterns of sin that maybe we didn't know were wrong, but now the Holy Spirit is working on us to, to cleanse our lives from them. And then repent of the things in our lives that are patterns, addictive behaviors of sin in our lives. And you see, as we do this, our heart, our heart desires become more pure and more in line with God. Uh, Our lungs, our spiritual lungs start to breathe more deeply of the indwelling Holy Spirit and understanding the whisper and breath of God in our lives, where he's leading us, what he wants us to do. We start to better digest and understand the truths of Scripture and how to interpret and respond to the experiences of life. All of these things, the spiritual CPR, is how we practice, how we put on the breastplate of righteousness in our lives as we go about our day-to-day living of following Jesus into this world as we keep standing on our feet on the field of battle. Together, confession Purification and repentance allow us to practice spiritual CPR and stay on the path of righteousness that God wants for us. Okay, So, the breastplate of righteousness, we receive it by believing in Jesus for it. And then we continue to wear it and practice it and put it on and keep it on by living righteously in our lives. And confession, purification, and repentance are one of the main, some of the main biblical truths that are going to allow you to do that. And only in this way, you will protect your life from deadly and suffocating consequences of sin. All right, that's the breastplate of righteousness. And uh, this is the second piece of the spiritual armor. And again, if you are enjoying this series of studies on the spiritual armor, I do encourage you to take the entire course over at redeeminggod.com slash courses. Uh, It's available for people in my discipleship group, those who join the discipleship group at redeeminggod.com slash join. But if you have questions or comments, you can leave them on my website. Just go to redeeminggod.com slash Ephesians 6.14b. And uh, that's where the manuscript for this study will be found. You can leave questions or comments there. But uh, there's more detail about all of this inside the course. So, so I want to thank you for, for those of you who are part of my discipleship group, for supporting me and encouraging me in that wonderful way, for keeping these studies and my books and courses coming out and available to you and to other people around the world. Um, and I, I, it really means a lot to me. It's very encouraging as I prepare these every week for you. Hey, listen, thank you so much for joining me today on this study. And I am excited next week as we get into the next piece of the spiritual armor. There's six of these and then a surprise seventh. 
So make sure you stick around for the entire series of them. Okay, thank you so much, and we'll see you next week. Talk to you later. Bye.